Sunday morning. <laughs> um, this is the Valley Labor Report. We are in double overtime today. Uh, taking it easy on a Sunday morning. Um, and we wanted to, uh, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. And when we started this up nearly three years ago now, um, David and I did a, uh, we did a kind of introduction to ourselves um, and a introduction to the project. Um, but since then, we haven't done that. We haven't done a uh, like who who is it that that's talking to y'all every every week. We haven't really done anything like that since then. Um, and that video is uh, really bad. So <laughs> the audio is really bad. Um, the video is really bad. Um, definitely, uh, you know, we had never, that was probably the first time that either of us had been, you know, done an extended talk into a camera before. So, you know, um, not to say we're professionals now by any means, but, you know, I think we're a little bit more comfortable in front of the camera than we were three years ago. And we've never done anything like this for Adam ever. So, uh, so we wanted to do a little series where we introduce you to the folks making the show. Um, and so we are, uh, so we're going to start off with Adam, uh, and then at some point we're going to switch. We're going to have Adam interview me. And then, um, and then at another point, I think we're we're gonna bring probably bring David back on uh, for just to interview him and talk to him about his, uh, you know, his life because he's got he is is really um, he has uh, lived a fascinating life. I knew him for years before I realized that he spoke Spanish and had lived and worked in Mexico for like two or three years, <laughs> which is a bizarre thing not to know about somebody that uh, you're as close to as, as David and I. <laughs> so, um, so, so yeah, uh, so today we're focusing on Adam. Um, so Adam, welcome to the Valley Labor Report. I appreciate it. It feels a little strange to be on this side of the microphone and camera, but hey, uh, I'm I'm here, happy to talk. There you go. Trying yeah, to remind so. myself that this is live, uh, and since we're going to be getting personal, I, I guess I should be careful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so you know, and and 
we mentioned yesterday that we were going to kind of structure this like, you know, we've taken a lot of inspiration from Max Alvarez and, and the Working People podcast. And so, you know, we're probably going to it's probably going to be structured something like that, um, you know, just kind of. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I know that Adam has a lot of, a lot of fun stories and, and, you know, his journey to being a, a labor organizer or somebody who's, you know, dedicated to unionism is, is definitely, um, you know, definitely worth hearing. And so, you know, we'll, we'll, we can just start off, Adam, with your, um, you know, with your, uh, childhood. You grew up in, in Mississippi. Uh, talk to us about, you know, growing up in Mississippi and, and, um. And, you know, your, uh, uh, you know, the school that you went to and the jobs that your parents had, stuff like that. Sure, sure. Yeah, I was uh, I was born in Meridian, Mississippi. Um, not to dump on my hometown, but leaves a lot to be desired. Um, yeah, I was born in, in Meridian proper, lived in Meridian uh, until about uh, third grade. We moved out to the country or to the county. It wasn't very country by then, but... Um, that's Lauderdale County in Mississippi, so it's a uh, it's a little bit uh, west of Tuscaloosa. For those of you not maybe not so familiar with it, uh, the thing about Meridian is that it peaked with the railroads, and it's kind of been a, a slow decline since then. Uh, all my folks are are from that area uh, on both my mom and dad's side, so grew up there, and, and I did not move to to Alabama until I was twelve. Um, the summer right before seventh grade. And, um, you know, my time in Meridian in Mississippi, um, you know, I, I grew up with, uh, lots of, I guess, rural roots. Both of, both sides of my family came from the country. Um, my dad grew up on the farm and, uh, I know he was very motivated to leave the farm. Uh, and that was, uh, mm. I think, a lot of his inspiration to go to college. He he went to college to be an accountant, right? So he went a totally different direction. Um, he was tired of uh, feeding cows and picking beans. And so he was ready to have an office job. And uh, so he went to Southern Miss. Uh, those of you who know me know I'm a big Southern Miss sports fan. So I've stayed loyal to my team. Uh, and, and my mom, same Similar in that she grew up in the country, a uh, little farm, and, um, you know, I didn't have strong union roots in my background. Uh, I have to go back to grandparents and great-grandparents to find folks who were in labor unions. Um, and it wasn't something we really ever talked about either growing up. But, uh, you know, <sighs> I was... I was pretty glad to to get out of Meridian. Uh, I'm not going to lie about that. Um, and in retrospect, I'm even more thankful. Uh, you know, like a lot of places, it, it that has long since peaked. You know, it's seen outsourcing. It's seen deindustrialization. You know, there's not a lot of opportunities there. And so, um, like I said, around around the age of 12, when my uh, you know my dad decided to to pick up and, and, and we moved to Huntsville. Uh, he had an opportunity to come up here and, and that's what we did. And, um, you know, that was definitely a life changing experience for me and set me on a whole different path. Um, uh, one thing, uh, you know, that's, that really sticks out from, from growing up down there is, uh, you know, I was raised to be, a 
a Southern boy, uh, you know, and all the conservatism that comes with that, you know, and I guess I could just leave it at that for now, but, uh, you know, it, it certainly is unusual that here it is in 2023 and I'm this dedicated unionist and, and talking union on the radio and that was not what anyone would have mm. uh, expected, I'm sure. Yeah, well, so what what did your did your dad end up being an accountant? Yeah, yeah, he uh, he did. He he actually worked for PV Electronics in Meridian. Uh, you know, if there's any musicians listening, they're probably familiar with PV. Uh, it got its start there in Meridian, so that's what he did. Uh, and so, you know, I had kind of a we were on the edge between working class and middle class, um, and and sort of the the fluid spectrum that that flows between those two and uh you know we had some some struggling years and then we had some some better years um you know i i, I wouldn't say i grew up in poverty by any means um but you know some years were better than others of course and uh you know i i i respect that my father made the decision he made to to pick up his family and and move 4 hours away that's a tough call uh, you know, that's a call that I've definitely looked at myself, you know, now as a father and it's very difficult. Uh, but, you know, I've told him since then he made the right decision. Uh, it, it gave me and my brother, you know, new opportunities that we wouldn't have had had we stayed, I think. And it uh, exposed us to, to new types of people that we would have never met otherwise. Mm. Um, I remember moving to Huntsville and, uh, one of the earliest things about school in Huntsville that shocked me was there were Asian people. <laughs> I'd never, never encountered many Asian people. Um, you know, it was just white folks and black folks and, you know, a handful of Hispanics. Um, and so there was a, a different type of diversity here in Huntsville with it being a, you know, a high tech city, uh, heavy, heavy federal employment, heavy military so there was a diversity here in Huntsville that I I had never experienced before, and I had kids in my class that were Buddhist and Hindu and Muslim, mm. and and so that was that was very new to me. Um, I was just you know kind of blown away by that, um, and so that you know as as much as I sometimes can can be very tough on Huntsville for not living up to its uh, progressive rhetoric and things like that. Uh, I, I definitely can recognize some of the differences uh, to include even even when it came to race uh, and the level of of racism that you know i I saw a difference when I moved four hours north let's put it that way mm. uh, in the way people talked um, and some of the things that people said it seemed like the farther north we went, the less comfortable certain things. Uh, certain people were saying certain things publicly. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's something else that certainly stood out to me. How do you think, um, you, were your parents uh, and, and your family and the people that you grew up around very political either in um, Huntsville or Meridian? No, not at all. Uh, not political. Um, you know, I heard political stuff at home, but uh, definitely never heard, you know, they never went to city council meetings, right? You know, my parents ne were never the, that kind of 
that kind of citizen that was, you know, going to government meetings or lobbying legislators or anything like that. Uh, it was political in the sense of uh, talking about what they heard on radio and, and TV or saw in the papers, that sort of thing. Um, and it was certainly from a conservative perspective. I was raised thinking that uh, uh, Ronald Reagan was apparently the best president in living memory. Mm. Uh, that was a, one, of the, one of the things I was, I was taught, among many other things. Um, and so that, uh, that, yeah, that definitely is uh, something different, I guess, about me is that I, I was very interested in history and politics from a very early age for whatever reason it was. You know, like a lot of, I guess, young boys getting interested in war history and things like that. Mm. Uh, you know, so I was very interested in Civil War history. And uh, like m most Southern white boys, you know, I had Confederate flags and um, and was raised with certain ideas and expectations about folks that uh, I'm very grateful that I've uh, I've broken out of and and, and kind of saw the light. Mm. Um and uh, wrestling with those contradictions helped me to develop politically, I believe. What do you feel like was your, um, you know, I, I can think of, you know, a few light bulb moments for myself, but you grew up in, you know, you're not that much older than me, but it's still, you're, you're older enough than I am that it was a, a pretty different era when you were, kind of coming into adulthood and being politicized. What was your, um, what were some of your light bulb moments where you started to break with, you know, um, being a, like a Confederate flag uh, having type of person, right? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I was coming of age during the Bush era. And I think that certainly played a huge role in my development. Um, you know, as I grew into a teenager, like any teenager, uh, you know, you start questioning things that, that adults have told you in your life. Um, I certainly was a smart-ass, rebellious teenager. Uh, I mean, I guess I still am <laughs> in a lot of ways, but um, that was certainly part of it as well, right? So, you know, I was raised very conservatively, uh, you know, grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, um, and so... I thought Bush was was supposed to be the good guy, right? Mm. Um, and the more I read myself, um, the more I began to question things. So, you know, beyond just the natural teenage curiosity, I was I was still very interested in politics and history, like just from just intellectually curious. And so, um, you know, I'm thinking around the time I was 15 and, and especially about 16, I had started just reading all sorts of different materials um, and reading authors like George Orwell and, and Malcolm X even and, and folks like that that were kind of out of outside of uh, maybe what I had normally been exposed to. And as that was happening in the background, you know, you have Hurricane Katrina and the Iraq war. And those two in particular, uh, I know very much caused me to ask questions. And uh, it was hard to look at the scenes on TV from Katrina. And uh, certainly the, the war in Iraq and 
9-11, the, the super patriotism, mm. which, you know, we call it super patriotism, but really, you know, you had jingoism and, and some pretty disgusting nationalism happening at the time. And, and believe it or not, I was an ROTC <laughs> starting out in wow, high school. Wow, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> that Adam uh, was an ROTC. Wow. Yes. Uh, so, you know, here I am, this very anti-war, anti-imperialist person, but I was in uh, ROTC the first couple of years of high school. And and I would say the, the war in Iraq in 9-11 shaped all of us of mm. that particular age group in that cohort because, you know, most of us boys thought at some point we might have to go off to war. Mm. Um it was, you know, silly in retrospect, but you are kind of silly as a teenager. And but you see this happening on TV and you wonder if you're going to have to to get involved as well. Um, but I would say, you know, I, I started just really asking a lot of questions. I started exposing myself to a lot of different uh, things intellectually and reading, not just conservatives, but liberals and libertarians and uh, then, which leads into anarchists, right? Libertarian mm -hmm. socialist, and the next thing you know, you've you've encountered people like Marx, uh, and so it was. I think it was those combination of things, you know, the teenage rebelliousness, the the background of of the Bush regime, and just some of the the horrors taking place under their administration that became harder and harder to justify. Uh, you know, while I was exposing myself to different things intellectually. And uh, and the last thing I would say is probably music actually played a role, too. Mm. Um, I was very into music from the 60s and 70s and, um, you know, that counterculture era. And, you know, that, that also got me thinking because, right, Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin would not vote for George W. Bush, right? Uh, and so here were my... Uh, my my heroes, so to speak, um, who had embraced a you know alternative culture, who were anti-war, um, who were pro civil rights. So there again, those sort of contradicted with many of the things I've been raised to believe, um, and just kind of forced me to think a little bit harder about it about what what did I really believe and and why. It's interesting that you know there there's there's a lot of people that are are your age on the left and and just to just f so that folks know you're 32 now 33 you're 33 now yeah. so how old were you when 911 happened I was in 7th grade yeah so that some that uh, that summer I moved here summer 2001 okay and I had been in school for you know all of like a few weeks when when 911 happened so you were you were 12 when 911 happened yeah, yeah so the you know it's it's interesting that so there are a lot of people your age that are on the left that um, they cite kind of 9-11 in the Iraq war as, as a turning point for them. But the, um, you know, the, the, you know, the jingoism that you mentioned is, is I understand it because I wasn't, I was five. I turned five. 9-11 is my birthday. I turned five when 9-11 happened. Right. So I really had no idea. I wasn't, you know, right. Right. But, um, you know, the, the attitude was like 80-20 in support of the Iraq war, right? And so it's interesting that um, that there are a lot of people that kind of found themselves in that 20%. Well, and, and I would say I was probably like a lot of folks, I was part of the 80% until I wasn't. 
mm. right? And and by the time you know we're talking, so by the time I'm 16 or so, you know, 2006, 2007. By the time I'm I'm getting ready to graduate high school, by that point, you know, a lot of folks had you know woken up to the horrors of the Iraq War, um, and the ways in which patriotism had been exploited to infringe upon our rights with things like the Patriot Act and and, and the some of the blatant corruption of the Bush administration and of course their their alliance with evangelical Christianity um, so all those things were definitely swirling around and uh, but yeah I mean I, I think there were a lot of people of my particular you know this particular segment of millennials were heavily heavily shaped by that and then you know, as I'm graduating high school and trying to get into college is when the economy collapses, right? We have the biggest economic collapse since the Great Depression. And I think that also just sort of reaffirmed the mm -hmm. things that I had already been growing to learn and growing to, to feel. Um, you know, that just, that all, um, to me, it, it it just reaffirmed that the status quo was broken um, and that there must be a better alternative. So when did you graduate college? Was it 2009? Let's see. Um, I, would I graduated college, I believe, in 2011. 2011. Okay. Yeah. So like, you know, the time I'm in college is the time Occupy Wall Street's going on. Um, and that that certainly played a role for me politically in the sense that I saw out in the public a a questioning of the status quo that had maybe not happened previously. You know, we had big anti-war protests early in the Bush administration, of course, and uh, anti-globalization protests in the late 90s, early 2000s. But um, Occupy Wall Street was a little different because they were starting to look at the economy as a whole. They started to put forward a, a class analysis of some kind. You know, 1% versus 99%. Maybe it's a little simplistic now uh, to think of. But, you know, at the time, uh, it was just exciting to know that there were people in New York and, and California and across the country that were willing to demonstrate and uh, that I wasn't alone, even if I felt pretty alone here in Alabama. Um, I at least knew that, you know, there were other folks out there thinking similar things and asking similar questions across the country even if I didn't know very many of them around here. The, um, yeah, the, the Occupy Wall Street was definite, it is just, is another um, big, you know, I think that probably 9-11, the Iraq War, Occupy, the, the recession, and then Occupy Wall Street, um, and Bernie's 2016 campaign, I think, for people that are kind of my age to a little older than you, those are, probably four of the biggest, you know, politicization moments for, for so many. Um, yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. And, and so, you know, the, the big stuff, some of the, some of the big stuff for us is, you know, as far as, you know, the way that, you know, the way that I think that we see the world and that we see change coming and, and the way that we picture people as, is coming up for you kind of in this story now as you're entering the workforce. You know, we see, I, I see the workforce and production as a very important part of, 
you know, how society is and how society is, is going to change. And, and so what went into your decision making process when you were like, when you decided to be a teacher, um, you know, uh, your, your dad was an accountant. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what, what your mom did, but what, what made you decide to be a teacher and what was your experience like going from student teaching to actually having your own classroom and, and what did that do for you? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I decided when I was in high school that I thought I wanted to be a high school history teacher, uh, maybe eventually teach at the college level. Um, I had this love for history. I wanted to do something to make a difference in the world, as naive as that may sound. That's what I wanted to do. I felt like that's why I was here. Um, and frankly, that's what kept me motivated. Um, my teens through early 20s were uh, pretty difficult for me. Um, sometimes because of circumstances out of my control, sometimes because of poor choices I made uh, and people I associated with. But, uh, you know, there was a several year stretch that was very difficult for me. And this idea I had that I could be a teacher and I could, I could help young people uh, to not only feel better about themselves, but to feel better about themselves and actually know a little bit about history and be able to apply that and to, you know, maybe think critically about the world they live in. And that really, you know, something about that just really intrigued me. Um, I was lucky that I had some good teachers, you know, here in Huntsville. Um, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to give back. Uh, I knew that I didn't want to uh, just go make a profit for some you know, for somebody else. Uh, and so being a, a teacher seemed to be a way to do that, a way to uh, connect with the community and give back, a way to use my love of history. And and because I was, you know, uh, <laughs> I was kind of a screw up a, as a kid that stayed in trouble a lot. Uh, you know, I wanted to be there for those kids. Um you know, the kids that make straight A's, that never get in trouble, that have involved parents, and um, most of the time they're going to be okay, regardless of what kind of teachers they get. Um, it's It was the, the troubled kids. That's what, you know, sort of motivated me. And, um, and so as I was going through hard times, that kept me uh, from totally falling apart, I think, just... Because in the back of my head, I knew I had to hold it together enough to be able to to finally graduate college, to to get a teaching certificate. Uh, I, when I did my student teaching, I was out at Decatur High, and I really enjoyed that. Um, I liked that school a lot in the sense that it was very diverse, and I had uh, you know students coming from all kinds of different backgrounds, and that was really neat to me. And uh, it re it reaffirmed for me that I was making the right choice. Uh, that I felt like I was actually pretty good at something. I had uh, I had worked all throughout you know these these years when I was in school and everything. I worked in the restaurant industry, and um, you know much like you, I had uh, some some experiences in the restaurant industry that only reaffirmed some of my political ideas at the time. But also you know it, it was tough work, uh, and it wasn't. 
it, it didn't hit, you know, quite the same as as when I was in the classroom and working with young people. Uh, there was just something about it, you know, it, to see a kid's light bulb go off uh, and know that you you force them to think a little differently or, or to see them master something, to, mm-hmm. to grasp something. There was just something very fulfilling about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the student teaching definitely reaffirmed that and, um, you know, was hustling to to get into the classroom you know, all this time, you know, I was still kind of having some political development, but really on my own, um, mm. not with other people. I was not organized in any way, you know, with anybody. Um, and it was still a lot of, you know, coming more from like a theory perspective than a practice perspective. Uh, but yeah, teaching, uh, I did land a teaching job in Huntsville. Uh, oddly enough, at my alma mater at Grissom, uh, which was a little interesting. Um, as I said, I wasn't the best student or the uh, most well-behaved student. So uh, I ended up right back in my old high school, a place I never thought I'd go back to. Uh, but when you're trying to break into teaching, you take whatever teaching job they'll give you, right? Mm-hmm. When you're fresh out of college, you know, and you, you do it what they ask and and so I went to work, uh, this was 2012, I got hired by Huntsville City Schools, and this was like a year or two deep into Casey Wardinsky's administration. <laughs> so I had already been following corporate education reform and privatization and kind of understanding these trends and where things were going with public education being under assault uh, and with public education unions being under attack as well. I already kind of had some background there. Uh, and then when I entered into the classroom, I got to experience it firsthand. Uh, and, and that was, uh, that just, you know, motivated me further to get involved. Did the, um, did your time in the restaurant industry while you were in college, was that, cause I, I always saw for me, that is a very formative experience for the way that I, the way that I see the world, um, but I wonder, did that did did it play a similar role for you, or or did did you see your formation coming from other places? Um, I don't know that it was so much formative as like just sort of reaffirmed mm. a lot of what I had uh, felt, uh, you know, about the economy, about like inequality in our country, uh, imbalances of power, uh, a lot of that, you know, that I was already kind of thinking and or reading about. You know, you go to a restaurant and, and you go to work there and, and you see a lot of it up front. Um, and I, I spent time in different roles. I was a shift manager for a while at a couple fast food restaurants, um, you know, which so I even have sympathy for those who are kind of on the low, lowest rungs of management inside that industry, because I know that they are exploited as well. Uh, and they're not necessarily management in the way that we normally talk about it in a labor management relationship. Um, and there were certainly times where, you know, I was taking one or two classes and working 50, 60 hours a week. Um, and so that, uh, <laughs> you know, taught me a few things, but I didn't want to be on second shift for the rest of my life. I knew that second and third shift was for the birds, uh, was not a big fan. Um, but I met a lot of interesting people and that also, um, that's one of the things that probably stands out the most in terms of my time in the restaurant industry was I met a lot of great people. Uh, I met a lot of people who all had really interesting stories. 
people who were down on hard times, you know, who were trying to catch back up and uh, people who had spent their whole lives in restaurants, people who had been laid off from other jobs and in some cases more lucrative jobs and, and kind of ended up in restaurants. Uh, people who were a lot of people who were kind of on the margins for various reasons, um, you know, people struggling with addiction. Uh, met a lot of folks like that. Um, Do you have any any like stories or anecdotes that particularly in in your mind kind of exemplify um, working in the restaurant industry and then um, the uh, and then what what that reaffirmed for you? Well, you know, not there's no particular anecdote that I, I'm I'm seeing come to my mind that what I'm seeing is really just kind of a lot of the Mm -hmm. faces that I worked with over the years and how these were people who, you know, worked hard uh, Mm -hmm. and they were struggling. Uh, These were, in some cases, people who were struggling with with health issues, with no health insurance. Mm -hmm. Uh, People who were addicted to drugs and were working basically to feed their habit and were on a path to destruction and you could just see it. People who had two or three kids at home and nobody to help them, um, you know. And so I just, you know, seeing folks like that who were struggling so hard uh, just to, you know, also somebody could have a hamburger and french fries, right? Mm. Uh, You know, it just didn't feel right to me that in a country with such great wealth, with such great resources, to, to... see so many folks just struggling folks with so much potential uh and that's not to take anything away from working in the restaurant industry because Mm -hmm. um you know obviously there are folks doing great work in that industry uh but it's hyper exploited and um you know some of the things you you would see in the workplace in terms of sexual harassment um abuse from customers uh you know, and threats from customers and uh, safety concerns, uh, you know, even even things that maybe seem minor, you know, just your, your routine burns, mm. your, uh, you know, you, you, you catch athlete's foot because your feet are soaked in water every single night because you're scrubbing floors, mm. right? You're twisting your ankle, taking the trash out, those sorts of things, you know, it just... Uh, it just it, it just really reaffirmed for me how how hard so many people were working and and how little progress they were making mm. um and it felt to me like you know things could could be a lot better and so when you um when you moved into teaching did you um did the did it feel like Okay, this is going to be it, and this is going to be, you know, how I spend the rest of my life, and this is going to be a really great job, and I'm going to have it like a, you know, did you have it built up in in your mind as you know this is you know this is it? Oh, I had it built up in my mind. Yeah, uh, I can't say it lasted very long like that in my mm. mind um, because the reality of teaching uh, was a wake up call. Um, you know, I guess like all young idealistic teachers, you go in thinking 
you're just going to change the world and you're going to make such a difference. And like, mm. you love these kids so much and they're going to know that. Right. And they're just going to all do mm -hmm. what you say right. and they're all going to do great <laughs> on their test. And, yeah. and principal's going to be happy. And of course, it's a lot more complicated than that. And so it really depended on the day you asked me as to whether or not I felt I could keep going. Mm. Um, there were many late nights, uh, those first, those years in the classroom, uh, many late nights where I thought, I don't know if I can do this. Uh, and then you'd have those moments that would be so powerful and so inspiring that, you know, would give me, give me the juice to keep going for another week or two. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, I should mention that, uh, my wife is a teacher, um, and we entered the profession at the same time. We actually, we met at Athens State, uh, where we were both going to college to be teachers. So we, we were on the same, taking that same journey into the classroom at the same time. And, and I couldn't have made it without her for sure. Um, you know, wouldn't have made it, hmm. but, uh, yeah, you know, I still thought even as difficult as it was that I was uh, that maybe I could really make it work and uh, if nothing else, you know, keep plugging away, get some tenure, get a little job security, maybe go back to school and and then see if yeah, teaching at the college level would work out. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I still maybe had that in the back of my head. And when you're, uh, you know, while you were doing this, um, while you were working as a, as a new teacher, how involved were you or at what point did you become involved with the uh, with the teachers union or with, you know, the teachers association yeah. um, in in some in some states, they would call it a union and uh, not in our state. Uh, and we're talking about the Alabama Education Association. Yeah. Uh, you know, you you were involved with them for a. Uh, for a very long time as a teacher and then as staff, when did you, when and why did you become involved with them? So, you know, by that point, I, I felt pretty deeply in my heart that the best way to make change was organizing workers, that an organized working class was how we could build a better world. And not only should we do that, we don't really have much of a choice. That's, that's really our best hope left uh, to address just the multiple layers of crisis that we're living in. So that in mind, um, you know, I thought, okay, well, I'm a teacher, right? So I need to start with fellow teachers. Uh, we are being exploited. We're being oppressed. We are being taken advantage of. Uh, we're being asked to do things that we know is against our best judgment. And so we've got to push back. And uh, so I did get pretty quickly involved. Uh, I think I signed up to be a building rep by the end of my first year. Um, I was following what was happening in Montgomery uh, because this time period that I was getting my foot in the door of education just so happened to be the same time period that the Alabama Republican Party had launched an all-out assault on public schools in this state. Mm. Uh, you know, you had the Great Recession, and following that were some, some of the steepest budget cuts in the country. Following that, you know, you had this, this takeover, you know, the 2010 takeover of the Republicans in Montgomery, which meant from 2011, uh, as I was starting to, you know, do my student teaching, 
those next few years, it was a nonstop assault. You had the legalization of charter schools, the legalization of vouchers through the Accountability Act, uh, attacks on tenure, attacks on the pension system, attacks on AEA, you name it, right? So public school was public schools were under assault. Here at the local level in Huntsville, we were dealing with Casey Wardinsky, who came from the Broad Academy. This is a man literally trained mm. in the the arts, the dark arts of corporate education reform and privatization. Uh, and so I was I was feeling it on a personal level that I maybe hadn't before. Right. What had been largely theoretical uh, now became my day to day existence. And and that uh, definitely for me, I felt like I had to I had to fight back. Um, it, I can't say uh, it always made me feel better, <laughs> mm. but I just had this I had this crazy notion that like we we just we couldn't lay down and take it. We had to do something. Uh, and so, yeah, I signed up to be a building rep. I started asking questions. I started having conversations with folks, so much so that folks started coming to me, um, which was a little different. You know, here are, here are my colleagues who are twice my age, hmm. old enough to be, you know, my mom or in some cases my grandmom. And uh, they're in coming to cases, me. cases, certainly old enough to be your teacher. Some of them probably were your Some teachers. of them were my former <laughs> teachers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that was that was a little, little bit of a, a different experience for me um, and kind of forcing me to grow up a little bit. Uh, you know, you're, you're not just that kid anymore. You, you know, folks are starting to, to come to you mm-hmm. uh, and, and trust what you have to say or, or at least want to know what you have to say. And so, yeah, the couple years I was at Grissom, um, kind of grew into that building rep role, uh, started attending meetings of the local association, started, uh, you know, and all on my own was doing advocacy stuff in terms of writing legislators and um, getting involved with the Badass Teachers Association, uh, which was like a grassroots group, you know, that w- was kind of centered in, on Facebook. Uh, and connecting with other national groups, mm. Network for Public Education, things like that. Um, so, yeah, it, I think by end of year one, I was already involved. By end of year two, I think I had already run ran for delegate uh, to the state and national assemblies and uh, had won those positions. And um, then I actually volunteered to go from Grissom to J.O. Johnson on the other side of town. Uh, which was a whole, whole different experience. Uh, those of you who aren't local, um, you know, it, I went from you know the the blue ribbon school, quote unquote, uh, with a diverse but white majority uh, school with very high test scores on the more suburban south end of town, and left to go to the north end of town, which is. Um, you know, predominantly African American. The school itself was ninety five percent black, I believe, wow. and probably you know just as high in terms of the free and reduced lo- free and reduced lunch rate. Uh, you know, so high poverty, uh, low test scores. It was considered a failing school, quote unquote. So that also, I think, was um, you know that 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 was a formative experience for me to see the inequities that were in our system. Um, you know, even within the same city school system, mm. the inequities. Uh, 
uh, based on you know your neighborhood, based on your race, uh, and yeah, that it was it was good for me culturally. I think um, it was good for me uh, to to see it firsthand uh, some of those inequities and to know what some of those teachers were going through. Uh, and in some cases, there were things that, you know, it put in, it put things in perspective, right? Because when I was at Johnson, we, we had students, we had so many of our students where, you know, the most important thing for them was whether they made it back the next day, whether they had a full belly, mm. whether the lights stayed on that night, uh, you know, and so... <laughs> when I then I would think about some of those teachers that come to me and, and had complained like because too many kids were chewing gum in class or something like that something mm. that in you know in, in context now seems very minor and petty um, you know we were we were dealing with a whole new set of problems on, on top of the same issues that we were dealing with from our central office um, but so that was that was a wake up call as well yeah to teach in a high poverty school. You know, to try to teach AP classes when you have kids that were reading at an elementary re reading level in mm -hmm. some cases, right? That's how far behind they were. Um, and the expectation, though, was that you were just going to work miracles. Right. You know, and that that was so frustrating for me and for all of my colleagues mm -hmm. that we felt like we were put in situations where you just couldn't win. Uh, but the expectation was that you were going to win mm -hmm. and uh, you weren't going to ask for help to do it either. Right. You were just going to figure it out. And somehow these kids who were like six, seven years behind academically, you're going to get them all on grade level and you're going to make all these test scores look beautiful and you're going to make all the discipline data look beautiful. Right. And, and those um, those experiences of seeing firsthand the political nature of, of the education system to see how name numbers are, are gamed and statistics are played around with and how people, the actual people involved, the human beings, the students and the, and the teachers and the parents were just really of no consequence. Hmm. It was about the business. It was about the data. Um, wasn't about any of us. And my understanding is is that one of the ways that your progression kind of goes as you're a teacher is that if you're a good teacher, then you get to get out of these failing schools. Is that is that right? Like the they you know the any you know any teachers that do actually have some sort of modicum of success, you know, do they end up staying there or do they get moved around to a to a, a better school as a reward? Yeah, you're speaking to a trend that definitely has has been around a long time where yeah the teachers that are having some success it's like you pay your dues at the at the tough school so mm -hmm. you know now you, you move on to the you know the, the higher performing school um so yeah that which really I, I saw just almost of, seems the opposite right yeah life. and that that's you know i should say that the federal consent order was sort of taking shape there as as i was teaching at Johnson, uh, mm. you know, those hearings were going on and things of that nature. So that's where you started to see uh, the federal government coming in and, and asking, like, does this make sense? You mm. know, the the harder the school, the less experienced the staff, 
Hmm. hmm that you know that doesn't seem very equitable. Right. Um, and yeah, I saw that because there were there were quite a few people I was working with who were from Teach for America. Hmm. Now I had political beef with Teach for America as an institution, uh, and I wasn't shy about sharing that with folks. Um, but they were all you know well-meaning people. They were all good-hearted right. folks who I think were there to do the best they could. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if you've got like a communications degree from some private school up north. Now you're coming down here to teach a high school science class. Wow. You know, or something. And it was situations like that where you could just, you could see the writing on the wall that it probably wasn't going to work. And the turnover was extreme. Even, you know, at both schools that I was at, there was high turnover. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I come from a school that had a very veteran staff, highly acclaimed teachers, who were leaving left and right. Mm. They were either retiring early or they were bolting to the, you know, other districts and they were going to finish out their career somewhere else. And then, you know, at Johnson, it was uh, a ton of brand new folks, people on emergency certificates, people who just graduated, uh, people from TFA. Uh, but then you did have some, some seasoned teachers who had been there a while and, and, you know, you're, you just, had nothing but respect for those folks who had who made it, right? Because they 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 were there, dealing with a different administration nearly every year, dealing with you know losing students to gun violence every year, losing students to incarceration every year, and, and just pushing that boulder uphill year after year after year. So mm. uh, those were the real OGs that you had to just respect that they could come to work every day and keep on keeping on under those circumstances. Right. And so at what point, how quickly was it that you turned over to being staff for the AEA? So that spring of my year teaching at Johnson, the job came open. Um, You know, like I said, I served as a delegate, uh, a building rep and was going to all the meetings. I was very involved. I was very outspoken. There weren't many people who were outspoken, particularly non-tenured people who were outspoken. Mm. Uh, the Wardensky administration had made it very clear that you were not to uh, express any form of dissent. And those who did often found themselves uh, with consequences. So, you know, folks encouraged me to apply to the position. I thought there was no way in hell uh, that I would have a chance because I was still so young and and still pretty new at everything with education, but, you know, I applied just for the, just for the experience, mm-hmm. right? I thought, what the heck, uh, it's, it's worth putting my name in there to see what happens. And, uh, one thing led to another, um, you know, in truth, uh, because I was young and, and new, that meant that I hadn't made many enemies just quite yet. Mm. Uh, which is frankly the reason I got the position over someone else. Um, and so AEA had no idea what they were getting. Um, they didn't really know. They just thought I was this young up and coming whippersnapper who would have a lot of energy and, um, you know, would be a golden boy for them. They had no idea the extent to which I had radical politics um, or my conception of 
organizing, um, you know, that I was someone who was really and truly committed to building a labor movement Hmm. in Alabama and in the South. And so it was very quick in my tenure with AEA that those contradictions started to come to come into play uh, because it was very clear, as you alluded to earlier, you know, they don't call themselves a union. They are very clear that they don't want to be a union. Mm. Um, they are a professional organization, a professional association. Uh, they have no inclinations to associate themselves with the rest of the labor movement. And so for me, you know, that was, um, there was, there, there was just that tension pretty much right off the bat because of that. Uh, because I did see myself as someone who was trying to be a part of growing a labor movement in the South and in the state um, and connecting the struggles of workers inside of our public schools to, you know, the struggles of workers everywhere in our economy. Mm-hmm. I thought that was important. Um, and I thought that it was important that we actually, you know, fight back. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we've been getting our ass kicked as educators for the last several years in a row, and I was ready to do something about it. Um, I was very naive in thinking that the staff position would have been the right move for me. Mm. But, you know, I was 25 years old, right. and it was an opportunity that I felt I couldn't pass up. Um, but in the back of my head, I already knew that it wasn't going to work. I knew it wasn't going to work. If you had it to do over again, do you think that you would, uh, you know, you could go back and tell yourself, you know, give yourself any advice. Do you think that you would, you would have stayed on as a teacher? um, Or do you think that um, you would have moved from education altogether? I don't know. And I do think about that a lot. Honestly, I think about that a lot, and I still don't know uh, if I could go back and and talk to to past me. What would I say? Um, yeah, I I miss the classroom. I like I miss it. Uh, mm. It uh, because I felt like I, I could be pretty good at it. Uh, I had my moments and. Uh, like I mentioned, those those moments with the kids when you were making a difference, um, I miss that, and I miss it now. I miss I missed it after I left it. Um, I didn't miss a lot of the the bullshit that came with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I didn't miss the you know two hour faculty meetings and the nonstop emails from central office and all you know all that stuff. I, I didn't miss it all, but I miss working with the kids. I miss designing lessons. Um, you know, would I do it all over again? I don't know. Um, the thing that I wouldn't have the experiences I have now had I, had I not taken that route. I met so many people, um, and in my own ways, I think I did do some good work. And so I'm not sure that I would, you know, undo it. Uh, but I do miss leaving the cl- you know I miss the classroom and um I think that 
I knew I knew that there was a, a real risk in what I was doing by leaving the classroom to go work for AEA mm. as a staffer. Um, for various reasons, just the political nature of the job, but also because I knew deep down who I was mm. was not what they were about. Right. Uh, and, you know, I thought maybe I could cram a square peg into a round hole kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, it, it was never going to work. And that, you know, ended up coming to a head and, and you were let go by the AEA. And I don't know how much you want to get into that, but, you know, in, in multiple ways it has, you know, that the, um, the difficulties of, of having taken that position is, has, you know, I mean, you're still feeling that to a certain extent today because I'm, you know, for one, you don't, you don't have the AEA job anymore. Uh, they let you go because of, you know, your, your differences with them. Uh, but also, you know, uh, and, and in your opinion, it's it's because of your affiliation with the AEA. You've not been able to get another classroom job, and and you know, I mean, how many was it that you applied for, and you didn't even get uh, yeah. a call back? Yeah, it was quite a few. It was quite a few. I mean, I'm not naive. It's Alabama, and um, I'm an outspoken, fairly high profile labor militant hmm. with left wing politics. You know, what school superintendent or HR director in this current environment is going to be eager to hire someone like me? I get it. I, I get it. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess. But what you're getting at is like it, it's kind of. when Leaving the classroom when I did, it was sort of a point of no return because of what I left for and mm -hmm. what I've done since. That's OK. You know, I have to make peace with that. Um, and that is what it is. Um, you know, in terms of the situation with AEA, you know, I was there for over five years. I saved some people's jobs. I won uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars for my members and put it back in their pockets. I, I used every tool in my toolbox to fight for them. I, you know, I, I stayed on the media. And that's, that's the thing. I hate being on camera. Uh, I don't like being on the microphone. And I know that's that's strange because here I am doing this, uh, but I have never been that person. I, I I'm a very private person. Even this interview right now is a little uncomfortable for me to talk about myself and and get personal like that. Uh, I I'll talk union. I'll talk your ear off. I'll talk politics and talk your ear off. But I, I don't like to be in the limelight. But uh, in a situation like I was in, you know, I had no choice but to kind of be in the limelight. And so um, I fought very hard to build a coalition uh, to unseat a very destructive superintendent. And we had some success there. And I fought very hard to undo some of that damage. Had some success there. Uh well, and I mean, uh, you know, some of the success that, you know, or, or uh, some of the success that you had as a as an AEA rep, I, you know, can be seen. Um, I think with anybody that knows anybody in the education community in Huntsville will have, you know, heard 
good things about you. And, and you know, right now we've got in, in the Facebook chat, Gail Carter said, uh, you know, how much they appreciated you um, working for the AEA. And, and you know, you, you know, occasionally some of our videos will take off when you talk about education. And, you know, it, you know, there's a whole lot of you'll see a whole lot of comments like, oh, I miss Adam so much, you know, and all this. And so, you, you know, it um, I think pretty clearly you made a big impact uh, during your time at yeah. AEA. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, and I appreciate that from, from Gail and from others. And, uh, you know, I try to do the right thing. Uh, I know I've made a lot of mistakes. Uh, there's no training manual for, like, how do you fight the machine? Right? How do you, how do you fight the machine and, and build something, uh, build something from, from pretty poor conditions uh, with minimal support? And, uh, so I know I made mistakes. I know, uh, there are things I would do differently, you know, if I had it over again, but at the end of the day, I tried to be able to sleep at night being on the right side of history and, uh, and siding with those who needed help. Uh, I've always been a person for the underdog. And so that's what I tried to do. Uh, during my time with AEA, I was very involved with the staff union that gave me a whole nother layer of experience that mm. you know, I wouldn't have had otherwise. I got to be uh, a delegate for the National Staff Organization. I got to attend trainings with the National Staff Organization. I'm very thankful for my staff union. Um, and they fought for me. They did. They, they saw it as an injustice. Um, they knew some of the background there, they knew some of the personal and political nature of, of the situation. And uh, they, they had my back 100%. You know, it didn't work out, uh, but you don't, you don't always win them. Mm -hmm. and, and with the job I was doing, I was, I was used to that, right? I, I, right? I fought a lot of fights knowing we weren't gonna win. Uh, and it, sometimes you just do it because it's the right thing to do, even if you know you're gonna lose. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't, um, it wasn't very long. It was after you were fired from the AEA that, that we approached you about the show, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was some, not too long after that. Um, you know, you and I had already met each other through politics and organizing. Um, cause I guess I should say during this whole time, you know, I was mixed up in all sorts of different politics and community organizing efforts and, you know, I appreciate my comrades at Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance and, and other organizations. Uh, so, yeah, you and I had crossed paths. Uh, David and I had crossed paths and different things. Uh, so we already had had some some background there. And uh, we had gone to that labor notes training mm -hmm. a couple of years previously. Right. So I guess you started thinking, well, who's the like union guys around here who would be willing to talk on the microphone there's not a whole lot right <laughs> you probably had a pretty short list so uh yeah y'all came to me and, and expressed an interest in me participating in this project and you know i don't remember how much i told you about this but at the time like i was i was very grateful because i needed something to um you know give me some some purpose uh some some juice uh to, to get re-energized but the thing is this project is something that i had always had in the back of my mind 
Mm. Well before we knew each other, well before I'd met David, um, I felt like there was just such a deficit in this state when it comes to working class media, when it comes to labor media, uh, when it comes to just journalism, period. Mm. But certainly anything presenting a more alternative viewpoint, something that um, that really like is of the people and for the people and by the people, just such a deficit with that. And so mm. I had always thought in my back of my head, like, we should really have some different alternative independent media in this state. Like someone really needs to, to work on that. Uh, so yeah, I was I was thrilled, you know, when you guys started this project and um, was a fan and uh, you know I remember you guys had had some great guests right out the gate and so yeah I was very grateful when y'all approached me and you know uh, so un- unfortunately you know there's there's definitely um, I I derive you know a certain amount of juice and, and purpose from from the show uh, unfortunately. It's to this point hasn't been able to provide you uh, juice in the form of, of uh, you know, physical sustenance. Right. And so, That's OK. <laughs> That's OK. Uh, and so what you've been doing in the meantime is you've been working as a as a union stagehand. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've had I've had a lot of irons in the fire, just, you know, like a lot of folks um, after you experience disruption in your career. Right. You're right back at square one. You're a, a gig worker. And you take the gigs you can get. And uh, so, yeah, I've I, uh, been doing all kinds of different things just to try to make ends meet, um, including substitute teaching. That's been also mm. an, another uh, very low-paying position. Right. But it's been kind of cool to go back in the classroom and see things from that perspective. And it only uh, reaffirmed my ideas that superintendents and principals should be required to substitute mm. every month as part of their contract. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to talk about that one day. But yeah, I uh, got mixed up with IOTC 900 here in Huntsville. And that was a totally different experience for me because I had been in the education sector and working in politics and advocacy. So to go to a blue collar job, um, you know, was a change of pace for me. And to be at a trade union with this big team environment, mm-hmm. um, man, I have loved it. It's it's the best job I've ever had uh, because you show up, everybody helps each other out. You have a mission to do. Somebody's going to help you understand that mission. Mm. And if you get lost, someone's going to help you get right back on track. And and you know you just help your brothers and sisters out to to finish the the job safely. And at the end of the day. Or at the end of the night, you have just built something fantastic that people are going to mm. enjoy, mm. right? And there's just something really cool about that. So I have loved it. You know, I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, music has always just been, music has always been on in my life. Uh, and so now to kind of dip my toes in that industry a little bit, uh, that's been fun. And I'm very grateful for my sisters and brothers in IOTC 900. Uh, they kind of welcomed me with open arms and, uh, you know, admitted me into the union. And I, I've been very transparent with them that I'm much better writing grievances and writing contracts and than I am with a, a wrench and a hammer, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
you want me to review the contract? You want me to uh, write a press release? I gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, carpentry, not my not my uh, go to skill set, but you know they've been great to work with me, and yeah, I've been. Uh, well, and they and just like with you know being a teacher, you said you were a building rep. What by the end of your first year? Well, I yeah, I was uh, actually just just elected to a board of trustees. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, jumping right into the business of the of the union, the organization, and yeah, um, yeah. I um, I just wanted them to know that I'm happy to help, however I can contribute, and uh, so that's been cool to kind of go back to square one, you know, instead of being like the guy, I'm just one of the guys, mm. and I'm just here to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and contribute my talents and skills such that I have them in a way that's going to benefit the whole union. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's that's been cool. Uh, I have been involved a little bit and uh, been enjoying that and, and looking forward to, to strengthening 900 for the years ahead. Something that I have always wanted for this project is to reach out to people. You know, the reason that David and I didn't make this a podcast, the reason that we did it on the radio um, and on a conservative radio station, no less, where Sean Hannity started um, is because something I've always wanted for this project is to be a project that reaches people beyond our click beyond uh our people beyond people that already agree with us on everything and that's something that is um that i think is important for a media project that's interested in political education like we are but i think it's also very in keeping with the identity of the show as a union show because the uh a very important part of being a good union organizer um, is to work with the contradictions of the workforce, which are many, um, and deal with anti-union and conservative attitudes, which often go hand in hand, some uh, sometimes reactionary politics, um, and sometimes even unhelpful uh left-wing radical politics um and so you know i'm in uh, i'm interested in how how have you how did you deal with those ideological contradictions as like a as a building rep and as a uniserve director for aea um you know working with teachers who yeah and and this is something that so many people are, I think, purposely obtuse about, like, you know, teachers often reflect the population. And so if you have a mostly conservative population, your teachers are going to be mostly conservative, right? That's mm-hmm. just the, the name of the game. And and so, you know, how did you, as a, you know, not closeted, right, about your left-wing politics, how, how was it that you navigated these sometimes dicey waters uh, within your union, among your coworkers, um, and how do you see that experience as um, uh, as it relates to your work on on the project on this project? Yeah, I think um, it wasn't always something that I, I necessarily had to you know think through all that much. It's just that 
I think if you center things around what's real for working people, you know, what's what's really about their lives, what's impacting their lives, um, I think you can have success with organizing and with just building bridges with folks. Uh, we had success with that coalition against Wardensky, you know, where you had white Tea Party crowd in the same room with the NAACP. You had North Huntsville and South Huntsville, in some cases, on the same side. Uh, and, you know, day after day, in terms of trying to represent teachers and, and public school employees, uh, yeah, you have to navigate that uh, as you do in any in working environment. Uh, yeah, the teacher's politics more or less reflects the general population. Um, and so I think I didn't see it as my job to try to convince the workers I represented to think like me. For me, it was how can I support them to support themselves and to fight for themselves uh, and, and to win dignity on the job. Um, and I think if we do that the right way and we go about it the right way, a lot of times they'll on their own maybe reject some of those reactionary politics or some of those reactionary attitudes because I think the very experience of being in shared struggle with someone particularly someone different from you, is an experience that can change people. Um, and so I, I think it was something that it wasn't always like super planned out and deliberate. It's just you kind of have to, if you, if you take it seriously, like if you really want to just help people, you got to help them. And that may mean that they believe some shit that's really backwards, right? That like, Sometimes that, you know, offends you. They may believe some stuff that uh, is just, you know, bad for them. Not just, you know, something you disagree with, but something that's actually bad for them. Uh, but you got to help them uh, if you take it seriously. And so I think folks generally saw that even if. You know, some of the most loyal teachers I had, some of the teachers who like had my back, you know, when things went really south with AEA, a lot of them were white Republican teachers, oddly enough. You know, and I think a lot of folks might be confused by that because here I am, this young radical. Um, but I think they knew that I cared about them and about the system and about the kids. And I just wanted to do the right thing and help them. Uh, and I think folks, by and large, can get that. Uh, and I think folks, by and large, can figure out, at least on a day-to-day -day experience, who's really with them and who's not. And now it gets a lot more confusing when we start talking about who do we vote for every four years and, you know, that kind of thing. But just when you show up to work, it, I think most people have a pretty good sense of who's with them and who's not. Uh, and it doesn't take long when you actually engage in struggle to really figure that out. And so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, and sometimes folks from outside the South, uh, I think, don't appreciate how difficult it can be 
to organize down here. Yeah, and to to have some politics that are, are quite different from everybody that you're talking with. So much so that you don't even have common context sometimes. Like you don't even have common definitions of words sometimes. So how do you know, you, you've got to find a way to build relationships with people and work towards common progress and find those things where you can work together because you know what? That person may not have liked what I thought about immigration, but they liked that I had their back when their boss was treating them like crap, right? They knew they didn't deserve to be treated that way, and I knew it, and I let them know I had their back, right? And so I think that makes a difference, and I think folks who've done organizing in the workplace just have a sense for it that maybe, you know, the more politically-minded people just have never really gotten into, because it's just it's just different, you know. It's just different when you you have a responsibility to fight for that worker, whether it's a worker you like or dislike, you know. And if you have a bigger picture in mind, though, that it's about all of the workers, not that one person. Yeah, that one person might be a jackass, but that one person's case represents everybody else's case, everybody else's struggle. And if we win that one, that's important for everybody else. You know, that's, I think it's just, a, that's a mindset that a lot of times maybe the political type people don't have that those of us who've been in labor can, can just appreciate on a deep level. And, you know, for me, that, that kind of attitude is, is really something that, and, and I don't know, I've, um, and, and maybe I ought to try to, to center that even more because I, I've gotten a couple of comments lately that maybe some folks uh, felt like I was being condescending to, uh, you know, to people who believe to generally people who believe differently than me. But but the thing that the thing that I've always wanted to the show to put out is that it is not is not that is that, you know, um, if we have different politics, I don't want to dehumanize you. I want to attack the people that are powerful and that are at the top of these hierarchies. But, you know, I've read a lot of, of you know, the, um, you know, more liberal writers. And, and I have felt like I'm on the end of some of this snobbery. And so I've, I've always wanted to come from a place of we have... Maybe we have different politics, maybe we don't, but if you're a worker, we're on the same team, and and I always want to make sure that that comes through. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think so. I, I think that is huge for me. Uh, I believe that I'm not better than anybody else, and nobody else is better than me, mm -hmm. and that really is like pretty core to who I am. Uh not just politics, but just in general. And I think that is part of it. So I, I agree with you. I, I want the same for this project. I, I never want to come across as condescending to folks um, because and I certainly never want to come across like we're, we're punching down or mm -hmm. anything like that. Uh, it's about power. And if you are a working class person, you know, you're my brother, you're my sister, and I don't care even if you do believe some stuff that pisses me off, 
right? Even if you are confused in my mind or are wrong in my mind, you know, that, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean I want any less for you. doesn't mean I want you to suffer. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes in American politics, it seems like that's what a lot of this is about. Like, right. Okay, there's there's my folks, and then there's those folks, and I want those folks to hurt. Even I mean, if I owning, owning if I the can't. libs is so central to you know the like reactionary media outfit. It is, right? yeah. It's like, like even, that's the whole thing of their politics. I, I mean, even so much so that it's like, even if we're not doing anything positive for me and my people, mm-hmm. I at least can know that something bad's happening to someone else, right. right? And and find some gratification through that, and that's just. Um, I've never understood that, um, mm. and it just doesn't just doesn't make sense to me at all. I, I would never want less for someone else um, because they disagreed with me. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's different if if they pose a threat to other folks because we do have. I mean, I want to be very clear about it. We've got some pretty dangerous fascists out here in this country mm. who mean real harm to people of color, to uh, minorities of all kinds, and to certainly to people with radical politics such, such mm-hmm. as ours. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a little different. But, um, yeah, I, I've never understood the, the politics of, like, owning your enemy and that kind of thing. That just doesn't make sense to me. Well, and to be, you know, and... Uh... You know, on the show, and 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 in my view, purposely so. I'm purposely not terribly explicit about any, you know, long-term political project or labels. You know, and and I think really, I I was talking to actually David Griscom yesterday or, or the day before that, and you know, I I told him that I I don't feel like I'm a very sophisticated political thinker, uh, and he he told me not to sell myself short, but I really don't think I am. I I don't feel like a very sophisticated political thinker. I, I think that, you know, my politics are very, very, you know, gut level in a lot of ways and that, you know, uh, I have a very strong sense of like what's fair and I want what's fair for people. And it seems to me that what would be fair for people is is for, you know, power to be democratized in a in a broad way, uh, you know, in the workforce and the economy and, and in the government. But um, and and so, uh, but anyway, you know, we're not we're not terribly explicit. But you know, just for for the edification, you know, we you know, it might be interesting for folks to know more of like explicitly what your political outlook is. And, and David asked in the chat what your if you feel like you're more of a reformist or a revolutionary, and and why and what path do you see and, and strive for being of whichever one of those you feel like you are. That's an interesting question. I, um, I, I guess I would say I, I, I'm a revolutionary in the sense that I think only a revolutionary transformation of this this world is is going to save us. Uh, that means an end to capitalism, and I don't know what comes next necessarily. I don't think any of us do, but I, what I do know is very clearly the status quo is broken, um, and we need something different and we can do something different. I, I believe that deep down. And, you know, sometimes, uh, there, <laughs> I'm thinking of a few folks in particular in my life who 
tell me that I'm very cynical or that I'm very negative, pessimistic. Because obviously my outlook on um, mainstream politics, right? I am more of a radical. And so uh, I am quite critical <laughs> of mm -hmm. uh, liberals, conservatives, uh, the media, all of it, right? I, I get that. And so sometimes people assume that means that I just must be this like super pessimistic person. But deep down, I really do believe that we can put an end to poverty and we can put an end to war, that we can put an end to bigotry, that exploitation and oppression do not have to continue, mm. that we can do something different, that we could guarantee that every person really does have a chance at life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I really do believe that. I think the only way we can, we can do that, though, is through an organized working class that is powerful enough to unleash this transformation. And I don't think any of us can really say what exactly that would look like. Uh, and I guess we'll know it when we see it, mm. uh, maybe. I, I don't know. And, you know, I'm going to go with you as it, it's the same kind of thing. I don't particularly think of myself as a very sophisticated political thinker either. Um, you know, as much as I, I can appreciate theory and I, I try to, to stay well read on theory you know i think i'm much more like you it's just hey i don't think i'm better than anybody and nobody's better than me and i want what's right for working people hmm. not the bosses and um that's uh i would say my politics um in terms of the path um i'm someone who believes in a revolutionary transformation but has had to operate in these kind of reformist circles and in some cases even less than reformist i would say so i think that's just sort of the more of a practical thing that you were getting at earlier in terms of like organizing workers with different political persuasions right mm. it's not that you uh you know i've never abandoned that hope that we really can do something better um but i'm also not going to say well it's not everything, so why try, right? You know, mm -hmm. if if we can make some some improvements in the meantime, then I'm all about that. And so I'm willing to fight for reforms along the way if it does improve the lives of working people and, and in particular if it changes the balance of power and and can shift things to where we can build more victories upon that reform. Uh but that's that's kind of how I feel. So you know, we do what we got to do to survive in the system that we're in uh, and try to, to make things better as we go along. Uh, but I don't think we should ever lose sight that the system itself is is broken and we we can do better as human beings. I really do think we can do better. I, I just think it's uh, it's a matter of whether or not we as people can do it quick enough. Mm. before things really get out of hand, I think. All right. Well, Adam, do you think there's anything else folks uh, folks ought to know about you? You know, like I said earlier, I um, don't feel super, super comfortable doing this kind of thing. Uh, and I am a very private person. I'll probably be thinking all night about what I just said today, whether that was really okay. Um so I do appreciate uh, the support that I've received from folks on this show. I appreciate the support from 
rank-and-file educators I've received from North Alabama, from fellow advocates and, and labor organizers across the country. You know, I've had a lot of people cheer me on, and I appreciate that uh, more than y'all know. Um, and so I just want to contribute however I can in a way that helps grow labor in Alabama and across the South, because I think the South is is unique, and the South is where the fight has to be strongest for so many reasons. And so I just want to contribute in my own little way. I have fought the power <laughs> and often lost in that process, but I'm still here, and I'm going to keep on doing it. Adam Keller, co-host of the Valley Labor Report, union member, activist, organizer. Thanks for talking to us today. Appreciate it. 